uh, beginning in verse 15, just to give us a little bit of context. So Colossians 1, verse 15. This is God's Word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, as we once again return to the message of your minister, the Apostle Paul, the message of the gospel that he gave his life to spread throughout the world, we ask for your help. We ask for the humility to receive your truth. And we ask for the power of your spirit to be changed by that truth. As we once again consider the implications of Jesus, the one through whom all things were made and the one through whom all things are remade, we pray that he would be lifted up and glorified in our sight, in our hearts, and through our lives. As as we come to understand who we are in him, we would live as your people a light in a dark world. Would you do that by your spirit this morning in us? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I ask you this morning, or if I told you, why, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? How would you respond? How would you respond? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Your response to that request is important. It's vital for you because how we talk about ourselves, how we define our identity, has an enormous impact on how we live our lives. It's why the ancient Greek proverb tells us, know thyself. It's good advice because the answer to the question, who are you, determines how you live your life. And it is advice echoed by no less a Christian theologian than John Calvin, who tells us that knowledge of the self is essential even to the knowledge of God. 
how do we answer the question, who are you? It's a vital question, but it's also a difficult question. Where do we get our identity? Do we get it from our past? Do we get it from our family of origin? Do we get it from our choices in entertainment, our ethnicity, our national identity? Do we get it from our DNA? Do we get it from our Myers-Briggs personality profile? Is that who we are? How do we answer the question, who are you? What defines your identity? Well, Paul, in our text this morning, wants to answer that question for us. He's been talking about Jesus. Remember this exalted, beautiful picture of who Jesus is? And then he makes this very profound transition in verse 21. He says, here is Jesus. Now, verse 21, and you. And here's what Paul is doing. He is not saying, tell me about yourself. He is saying, let me tell you about yourself because of what I've told you about Jesus. He wants to define our identity. And he does that with a timeline. Past, present, and future. Who we were, who we are, and who we will be. And so I want us to look at each of those stages this morning. As Paul answers for us the question, who am I? We'll look at our past, present, and future. And I want to acknowledge as we begin to consider these stages and Paul defining our identity, I want to acknowledge that he speaks primarily here to those who are in Jesus, those who are Christians, those who have put their faith in Jesus. And I don't want to assume that for anyone in this room, for everyone in this room, And so I want to say to you, if you are here and you're not a believer in Jesus, we're glad that you are here. And I hope that you hear something in this identity that is intriguing to you. And I'd love to talk with you more about that, because come and see me afterwards. But let's jump in. Let's jump in and see how Paul defines our identity, past, present, and future. First of all, who we were. Who you were. And before we get to the words of Paul, we need to consider the book of Genesis. Because Genesis tells us the stories of our origins. And stories about our origins are key to defining our identity, understanding who we are. And one of the most important of those stories is the story of what happened to Adam and Eve after they ate the fruit that God told them not to eat. They eat the fruit and then God comes to them and he lists consequences of their disobedience. And we often focus on that list when we call it the curse, but we need to focus on what happens after that list. God says, here's what's going to happen because of your disobedience against me. And then what does he do? He says, Adam and Eve, it's time to go. You have to leave the garden that I made for you. You have to walk outside of this place where I put you to live in harmony with me and to live out my purposes in creation. And he sends them out of Eden. And that story matters 
Because it is what is behind the word that Paul uses to describe who we were. He says, once, this is verse 21, once you were alienated. To be alienated is to be outside looking in. To be alienated is to join Adam and Eve as they walk outside of the garden that God had made for them. Because sin sends us away from God. It sends us away from Him and the fullness of His intention for our lives. As Paul says in a parallel passage, Ephesians chapter 4, he says, you have been alienated from the life of God. You are, because of sin, outside looking in. Why? Why does sin do that? Why does it create in us an alienation from God and life in Him? Well, we need to think about what we mean by that word sin. It's not used in our text, but it is defined in our text. You know, we think of sin as doing something really awful, something incredibly immoral. That is sin. And it's certainly involved. Paul talks here about doing evil deeds. But what comes before the evil deeds in verse 21? He says, you once were alienated, hostile in mind. That phrase is the heart of sin. It is to be hostile in mind. Not in the sense just of thinking bad thoughts, but of viewing the world in a way that rejects and replaces God. Viewing the world in our lives in a way that rejects and replaces God. Think again about Adam and Eve. Why were they alienated from the garden? Why did God send them out of the garden? Because they did some awful, immoral act from our perspective? Murder? Incest? No, those things come later in Genesis, but not in the garden. What do they do? They eat a piece of fruit. They eat a piece of fruit, something that most of us would think is a good thing. That's healthy. Eating fruit, it's good for you. Why does that alienate them from God and the life that God intended for them. Because they ate the fruit hostile in mind. What did the serpent say to them? How did he motivate them to disobey God and take a bite of that fruit? He said, you will become like God. You can replace God with yourself or with something else. That is what sin is, and that is why it alienates us from God. Because think about this. If you're married, and someone else begins to take the place of your spouse in your heart, in your life, that's going to create alienation, right? That's going to create disconnection, distance. It is the same and even more with God. We were made for Him. We were made in a way to be His spouse. That's why He created the garden, so that He could dwell in intimacy with humanity. But in sin, we have replaced Him. We have rejected and replaced Him. We have become 
hostile in mind. Not, in all the, not only in all the obvious ways and things that we call sin, but in the basic view and approach of our lives. That we can do life without Him. We can live in this world without Him. With other kings. With other priorities. With other gods. That's what sin is. And that's what sin... That's why sin creates alienation in us. And sin, before Jesus is the core of our identity. Because of sin, the core of who we are before Jesus, who we were, is alienated. I don't take delight in saying this. But I am bound to draw out and be honest with the implication of this text, which is in harmony with the message of Scripture, which is harmony with the message of the Christian faith. It is a message that says, if we are outside of Jesus, then we are against God. And therefore, outside of the life that He wants for us. If we are outside of Jesus, then we are against God, and outside of the life that He intends for us, the life that He made us for. That's our identity outside of Jesus. That does not mean that all people who are not Christians are as evil as possible. That everyone who is not a believer is a psychopath, right? In fact, most of the non-believers I know are people who genuinely desire to live good lives and are making a genuine effort to do that. But what that message does mean is that whether it is obvious or not, Apart from Jesus, the direction of our life is away from God. And therefore, the core of our identity is alienated. Our artists know this. They sense this, that something is off. Dan Seidel is, a art, is an art historian and writing about and commenting on, you know, Edvard Munch's very famous painting, The Scream. Uh, Dan Seidel comments on that, and he says, if there is a dominant theme in modern art, it is the pain of alienation. The pain of alienation. But it's not just what we would call high art. It's in our popular culture as well. There's a member of my household that is obsessed with the movie Frozen. And uh, so we hear the songs of that movie thousands of times every day. (laughs) Over and over again. And one song in particular, and one line in particular, we hear again and again. And it's one sister singing to another sister, We used to be best buddies, but now we're not. What is that? It's a song of alienation. That is a story about alienation, about distance, about disconnection. And what the biblical story says to that story is that our alienation is even deeper than we think. It is not merely distance from each other, 
but is a profound distance from our Creator. That because of sin, we are far from God. We are alienated. But that's not all of the biblical story, is it? Paul's, in Paul's timeline in this text, where is alienation? Where's the identity of alienation? It's in the past. That's who you were before Jesus, outside of Jesus. And so we need to move from the past to the present, from who we were to who we are. And when we make that movement in Paul's timeline, it is a movement of drastic change. So verse 21, once you were alienated, distant, disconnected, far away from God and the life that He wants from you. But what happens? Verse 22. Now you are reconciled. You are outside looking in. But now you're inside the house. You are inside. You are reconciled. Your identity is no longer alienation, it is reconciliation. How? How does that drastic change happen? Well, verse 22, you you are reconciled by the body of his flesh, by Jesus' body of flesh, and more specifically, the death of his body of flesh. Now, this is an awkward phrase in English. It is an even more awkward phrase in Greek. Because Paul is sticking together here words that that don't make for eloquent writing, but make for eloquent truth. And he repeats, or he uses two different words for body here. And the first one he uses, he often uses in his letters to talk about human bodies in a neutral way. The second word he uses, translated flesh, is the one he uses when he talks about bodies in rebellion against God. Body of flesh. He is straining language to, to communicate a truth about Jesus. And it is this truth. It is that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, one with the Father in spirit, took on skin. And in His innocent body, He suffered the consequences of our rebellious bodies. His innocent body took on the consequences of our flesh, of our alienation. And because Jesus took on our rebellion, we get His innocence. Because in, his, because in his body he became, as Paul says elsewhere, sin for us. We get his body of righteousness. And that is how he reconciles us to God. Because he takes in his innocent body the rebellion of our body. You see, Jesus, he goes out into the cold alienation of our sin so that He can bring us into the warmth 
of God's acceptance, of God's love, of God's grace. And He does that so that He can give us a new identity. The identity of being reconciled. And I want you to hear echoes here. I want you, this is why I read the earlier text. I want you to hear echoes from what we talked about last week. Because last week we looked at this picture of Jesus. And it is a cosmic picture. Paul paints a portrait of Jesus where he is the maker of all things and he is the renovator of all things. But how does he renovate all things, all creation, new creation? How does he do that? He does it in his body, by his blood. And what does he do by his blood? He reconciles all things to God. Do you see what Paul is doing with this repetition? He paints a picture of Jesus and then he paints us into that picture. Reconciliation of all things, your life. It's the most glorious photobomb in all of history. (laughs) Cosmic picture, cosmic reconciliation, personal truth for you. If you are in Jesus, your identity, the core of who you are, no matter your background or your personality or your education or your job, your identity is reconciled, belonging to God. And that glorious identity is yours even if this week was one failure after another. That glorious identity is yours even if the entire world seems to say to you that you are a perpetual outsider. That glorious identity of yours, even when all of your experiences says alienation, Jesus, through his death, says reconcile about you. You are worthy To be called a son, a daughter of God because of Jesus' body of flesh. Because he took your guilt to give you his innocence. So he says about you, reconcile, but he doesn't just say that now, in this moment. Paul's timeline keeps going. Right? He moves from present to future, from who we are to who we will be. And we saw that when he moves from past to present, it was a movement of change, right? Well, when he moves from present to future, it is a movement of continuity. So verse 22. He dies so that he can call us reconciled now. Right? But he also died in order to, and this is in the present tense, in order to present you holy, blameless, above reproach. And all those words are labels of belonging. God is a holy God, and to be with him we have to be a holy people. Blameless is taken from the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, where God's people would come into God's presence 
And in order to come into God's presence, they had to bring sacrifices. And those sacrifices had to be blameless, without blemish. Above reproach is taken from the court. And remember in the ancient world, the court was the throne room. It was before the king. And to be above reproach was to stand before the king with no one to accuse you. No one to say why you shouldn't be there. All images, labels of belonging. So do you see what he's doing? He says, now reconciled. And do you know what Jesus is going to do in the future because of his death, because of what he has done for you? He's going to call you reconciled now. And then in the future, he will prove it. He will prove what he says now in the future. When he raises you from the dead and makes you new and presents you to God as the people of God for living in God's new creation, because of Jesus, you will stand there and no one will be able to say why you don't belong. No one will bring up all of the sin that you struggled with this week and say, hey, this person doesn't belong in God's new creation. They don't belong here. Send them out. No, Jesus will say, nope, reconcile. Holy, blameless, above reproach. That is who you will be. But there's an if. There's an if, verse 23, right? If you continue, and ifs are scary, and they can be discouraging. And I can hear some of your suspicions, just like a preacher to pull the bait and switch, right? The, here's all these glorious promises and possibilities, and then throw the condition in there at the end in the fine print. But this if, should not disturb us. It should comfort us. Because it is a condition not of going, but of staying. Hear the language of verse 23. Continue, steadfast, firm, not shifting, not moving, remaining. Paul is saying, stay. Stay where you are. And where is that? Faith and hope. Trust in the reconciliating work of Jesus. Expectation that Jesus will finish that work. Stay there, Paul says. We used building metaphors last week as well. Jesus is the builder, is the designer, builder, and resident of Creation, he is the builder or designer, builder, resident of a new creation. You know what Paul is saying here in verse 23? He's saying, live in that house. Stay in that house. Don't go to the house that you can build for yourself, the life that you can build for yourself. Stay in the house that Jesus is building for you. Remain. Stay there. You will be holy, blameless, above reproach in the future. That's your identity. Not because you go on some spiritual quest 
to discover some unknown, mysterious spiritual truth. You will be holy, blameless, and above reproach in in the future because you stay at home in the gospel and receive the treasure that Jesus has earned for you. Your identity is now reconciled. If you remain in faith and hope, your identity will be in the future reconciled. Holy, blameless, above reproach. So who are you? Who are you? Tell me about yourself. It's really not the most important question. The most important question is not who are you. The most important question is who gets to define you. Who gets to define your identity? Will you be defined by your accomplishments, by your failures, by your culture, by your family? Or will you surrender that question to the one who died? so that he could define you as reconciled? Will you let Jesus answer the question for you? Let's pray.